0: welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. On today's episode, I sat down with Christopher Nguyen. He is the co-founder and CEO of Arimo. We talked about the early days of Apache Spark. Christopher's company was one of the first companies who adopted Apache Spark in production. And we spent a great deal of time talking about deep learning, in particular, not just the technology uh, behind deep learning, but also what are the current business applications of deep learning and AI. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So Christopher, I think we should start by introducing you to our audience. What did you study in school? Well, um, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> well, just uh, I think undergrad. I know, I knew, I know your uh, UC Berkeley undergrad and uh, Stanford grad school, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, I did my undergrad at, at Berkeley in the EECS department, and um, I, I actually have always maintained a di- dichotomy. I uh, the major itself is in device physics. Uh, but I've always been a hacker. So I've always been very partial to the software programming side of things. So uh, very strong in, in uh, operating systems, algorithms, and so on. Uh, I was a, a lab assistant for multiple CS courses at Berkeley. And then at, at uh, when I did my PhD, It was on, again, also on device physics, that is, building bipolar CMOS transistors. Um, But my emphasis was looking at the uh, simulation software, no, Pisces and and so on. Uh, So, always been a a very strong software bent. So, what, uh, uh,
0: what kind of applications were you interested in at that time? Actually,
1: you should ask me what I do on the side, which I think is sort of it turns out to be more significant work in terms of impact. Uh, so I worked a lot on on um, Vietnamese uh, keyboard and character encoding, uh, and, and that went into the first iterations of the first version of Unicode. And, and so today, when you see Vietnamese, you know, on, on browsers and, and keyboards and so on, all of that, you know, a lot of that was, was my, my work back when I was doing my PhD at Stanford.
0: So when you say on the side, literally on the side, this wasn't, had nothing to do with your thesis? That's correct. So yeah. I, I guess going back, I'm just fascinated with kind of what you studied in school and applications. So are these, are some of the topics you studied uh, things that are relevant to types of things you're interested in now
1: yeah i think um well maybe the reason if you go back to why i chose to work at the device physics level is that i started out you know at age 13 as a hacker and when i chose a major i said your know, software depends on operating system operating system has been on firmware firmware on hardware all the way down i said i'm going to be working electrons so that everybody has to depend on me <laughs> <laughs> so rather than i have to depend on anyone. Uh, But that's, you know, I've always maintained a, 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 you know, in that sense, an interdisciplinary range of interests. And the math that applies at one level uh, actually applies at at multiple levels. For example, if you look at electron hole diffusion in semiconductor, uh, the, the processes that are described there applies equally well to work that I do much later in life in terms of statistical arbitrage trading where, you know, you look at option pricing or long short. Um, uh, baskets and so on so it's it's really the underlying math that ties everything together
0: interesting when did you do finance
1: um i built a company and then eventually sold it but we did statistical arbitrage that was my time in asia uh, you may not uh, you may remember that or know me personally you know that i was a professor uh at the hong kong university of science and technology a founding
0: and, uh, faculty member
1: right? Uh, that's right at the beginning very beginning of of that in the early 90s
0: so definitely your mindset going into grad school was uh, faculty.
1: That's right. Yep. I I thought for sure, you know, despite now looking back, my entrepreneurial bent, I, because of all of my role models up to that point have been my teachers. And so I, I was sure I was going to be an an academic. And so I did become one.
0: Ah, I didn't realize we had this in common. I My exit strategy for academia was finance as well. But I just worked for a hedge fund. I didn't start my own company. Oh, I see. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So then uh, at some point, you were at Google. And so tell our listeners what you did at Google.
1: Yeah, so Google was after I returned from Asia, having been out there first as a professor and then two-time entrepreneur and and having sold both of the companies. And so when it was time to move back to the U.S., uh, I came back and considered a number of things. And Google came calling and became a perfect environment, a great company in which to reintegrate myself in the Valley. Uh, so when I joined, Google was a much simpler company. There was just search, ads, and the kitchen sink. And the kitchen sink was applications that was emerging. We, we call, at one point we call them stateful versus stateless. Where search was considered stateless, and stateful was Gmail. And then that was put together with calendar. And you know we had internal code names for those things, but what it it is what eventually became Google Apps. And so I was the engineering exec that 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 ran team a team called SRE. Uh, site reliable engineering that has both the software engineering and the system administration aspect of of running a site like Google and and you know, running that aspect for uh, for Google Apps.
0: So your current company Arimo uh, was that immediately after Google, and if it was, was your interest in big data uh, inspired by your stint at Google?
1: Well, we can think of it as. The nexus between Google and the current company is primarily because of data, and more specifically, machine learning. I remember we met multiple years ago when I hadn't even given the name to this project. And if you look at my LinkedIn profile, it was big data slash machine learning, right? And if you remember at the time, that that nexus or that connection wasn't obvious to the industry at the time. And But I've always maintained... The view that the only reason for big data is machine learning. And of course, that view is much less controversial today. So the view and the perspective that I learned at Google was tremendous scale and what that scale meant in terms of the insights that you can derive from it using algorithms specifically. So just not big data for its own sake, but what big data contains in terms of patterns that can be learned from within the data itself. And of course, today, what we do at Arimo is precisely that applying deep learning to figure out patterns in particularly temporal data, time series data, and extracting insights and making predictions about the future from that.
0: And uh, nowadays, of course, everyone has heard of Apache Spark. And I guess many others have also heard of uh, the UC Berkeley AMP Lab, where Apache Spark came from. But mm-hmm. uh, not many people know that uh, your company was actually one of the first. Uh, companies to actually bet on what they call the badass stack, the Berkeley data analytics stack, which which, uh, Spark is part of. But uh, I guess in hindsight, even I would have to admit, you know, Mm -hmm. our early enthusiasm for Spark, we were way ahead of uh, the maturity level. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's right, that's right, well, you know, um, we talked about this right what is um when when you understand the fundamentals of what drives something, then something that isn't obvious to others may may be blindingly obvious to you and when we started this company, a Remo uh, at the time we call it a different name, a um the vision as i as I mentioned is about big data and machine learning. And at the time, the industry had just refactored itself into what I call just the big data layer. And I mean big data in the sense of the layer, the bottom, the storage layer. So I knew there needed to be what I call the big compute layer. And, and, and again, this is obvious from you know, looking from the Google perspective that you know that there's a big compute system, um, but outside the industry doesn't have one yet. Uh, and so we were going to build one. Out of data, in order to enable the applications on top of it, and one of the things that I knew that it had to be, it had to take advantage of memory in memory, and and there you look at the trends of how memory costs uh, have been dropping to a level where it can be adopted, uh, uh, you know, in, in large quantities. So the timing was right for that. So that helped the decision on Spark a lot. And so when we did a, a survey before we started architecting and building the system, uh, we came across many, many systems and Spark stood out, in particular, having the, just the right architecture. Um, you know, and if you like, we can go in depth into what I mean by, by that. I've written about that rather extensively. And I think
0: I think you've mentioned to me that at some point you guys also started thinking, well, we have two choices. Either we build the system or we adopt something with a community and has more of a head start.
1: That's right, yeah. So the way I tell the story, I was sat for just 24 hours, right? <laughs> because being an engineer and you know with a strong engineering team, the next exciting project was to build uh, this big compute layer. And then we found, you know, we looked at probably 15 different uh, permutations out there and found that Spark had the right architecture. And so that, that's where the genesis of what I say, I was sat for 24 hours. I said, oh, well, you know, somebody's doing that. Uh, but only 24 hours because we know that our goal wasn't really to build a big compute layer, right? It it, it was on the way to building something else, which is business value at the application layer for, for enterprises. So actually, you know, we were quite excited and we said the right thing to do is to join uh, what was then really, f- I think, maybe five, 10 people at, at Berkeley. Um, I remember the first meeting there, you know, it was just, we were the only commercial entity. Everybody else was grad students. And we said that we're here Two reasons: number one, we want to help uh, you know build out Spark, and number two, bet the company on it.
0: And then, uh, uh, at some point, you also started to uh, adopt some of the other technologies coming out of Berkeley, in particular Tachyon. Now, Aluxia. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, right. Yep. Um, I'm a big proponent of of Tachyon as well, and the way I. Um, I, I say my unique take on Tachyon is that today or Luxio is that we tend to think of it as a memory-based a distributed storage. Uh, I, I think the future of Tachyon, the future of Luxio, is much brighter when you when you flip the adjective and a noun around and you say that it's actually a storage-backed distributed memory system, a shared memory, when we have full uh, data center scale computing, we will need a shared memory layer to essentially serve as a shared memory for for all of the compute units.
0: So you were very early on in in Spark, and uh, Mm -hmm. you were also early on in terms of recognizing, you know, this natural language understanding is gonna be important to get right because that opens up a lot of things for us. And then at some point you also recognize Deep learning is uh, mm-hmm. uh, something that was uh, useful, not just for the big companies, but also for uh, mainstream enterprises. So, first of all, before we uh, start talking about deep learning in more technical detail, why should regular companies care about that? Isn't that just for the big Silicon Valley uh, companies without, we, who have a lot of data and have a lot of good engineers?
1: Yeah, this is... Um... It's a good question, and the question that's also reminiscent of, you know, why should companies care about big data or Hadoop and so on? And notwithstanding a lot of the hype surrounding it already, I think the thing, and, and I'm going to speak in what seems to be very broad, you know, dramatic strokes, but I'm, my, my history with deep learning actually goes back to certainly machine learning, a part of my academic background, but the exposure to uh, Jeff Hinton back in 2007 when he came to Google and gave his first talk about his work on on deep learning, it is really for the first time that we see that there is something that pretty much already works or would work only for lack of scale. Um, And what do I mean by that? Scale meaning scale in terms of compute and scale in terms of data. And of course, you've seen now how Google has taken Uh, I would say the beginnings of that deep learning adventure at Google 2007 and really proven out that if you just apply enough scale and you apply enough data to the problem, the performance of these deep learning systems really outperform, you know, uh, almost any other technique out there. And so I think of it as sort of a universal learning system that we are just at the very beginnings of right, and it's already making impact. Uh, at our company, we're already applying it to a lot of business use cases. So why should companies care about this? I would say, you know, in the spirit of some, you know, that saying that the future has already arrived, it's just unevenly distributed. Uh, companies should care about it because it will increasingly become the critical uh, competitive weapon. You know, it is it is a machine learning technique uh, in the, on the one hand, but it's also going to be uh, encompassing all of, of society uh, you know, you hear a lot about AI advancements and so on, and so I think it behooves companies to, at the very least, beginning begin to pay attention to it, and in in the case of our customers, begin to apply it and have it as part of their DNA going forward. Because you know, unlike many things that you know, you, you, there's a hundred things to bet on. There are a few things that you know very clearly you know, given the right mechanics and the right perspective, you know that it is going to be the way of the future. And I can tell you deep learning is is definitely part of it. So if uh, that's my belief.
0: And so I guess uh, so to the extent that if I'm a company and I'm I'm ready to embrace machine learning, I should definitely examine deep learning. Absolutely. This is not just a technique applicable to the things I read about, which would be computer vision. Machine translation, speech, those kinds of things, right?
1: Right, yeah. I think the things that we read about tend to, you know, it's just that there's a uh, self-selection in in force, which is uh, the thing that get published a lot tend to come from large companies like the Googles of the world and the Facebooks of the world, and they tend to have their problem classes, and, you know, they have to scale to provide their own solutions and also write about them. But there are lots and lots of other classes of problems that apply to... Uh, you know, smaller scale companies, uh, they're still very large, uh, but they may be different in that, for example, not every company uh, has a image recognition uh, problem, uh, you know, at, of, of scale. Uh, but I'll bet every company has transactional data, right, time series, a transaction log. And there's a lot of insight, there's a lot of patterns hidden in that transaction log, the time series data that people have, uh, that they can learn from, right? and intuitively you already know the patterns are in there it's just that either you have some basic tools to discern the patterns or you don't have tools at all deep learning is a way to extract insight from that and make predictions about you know the next likely behavior or the probability of purchase or future cash flows from you know from transaction data
0: so let's take actually the time series example right so so if i have that type of data chances are i might have a statistician or a electrical engineer on staff, so they can use time series techniques or signal processing, and I can, I can uh, start unlocking some of the value out of that data. But uh, deep mm-hmm. learning, I have no one, right? So, so what do I do? How do I yeah. get started?
1: That, that's a very good uh, sort of um, juxtapositions of, of technologies. Let, let's say there's, let, let's divide the world into sort of before deep learning on time series and, and, and after deep learning on time series. Techniques, of course, exist for processing time series. The, uh, if I put it in simple terms, I would say it's too hard. I mean, it's it's possible, uh, but it costs too much or it's too hard using these traditional techniques, and it yields the value that hasn't been sort of you know worth the investment. Deep learning flips that around, and it becomes you get much larger value for less effort. And so, I, if I can put it in those simple terms, but then, terms.
0: Uh, but then, uh, Christopher. Uh the the previous techniques as i point out though uh, you, i might have staff that can do the previous techniques i don't have staff uh, that can do deep learnings.
1: yeah well, well that's where technology comes in so let me let me try to explain why i see deep learning applied to time series being fundamentally different as the technology so so there's a lot of discussions out there about you know a lot of uh, publications out there about how deep learning is Doing 10 percent, you know, 5 percent better than than previous techniques, and so on. The area where it is significantly better is in time series modeling, right? Uh, so the staff that you mentioned that have a lot of experience in techniques like ARIMA and signal processing, and so on. And the reason you need a lot of those staff is because those techniques require them. And and don't get me wrong, they're still very very valuable. What happens with with, uh, deep learning, particularly recurrent networks, right, like I'm sure you know about LSTM, long short term memories. So so these are new, relatively newly applied techniques that suddenly can model time series in what I would call a much more natural way. Uh, You don't have to specify arbitrary windows. You don't have to say, look for five and a half day patterns or six day patterns with these recurrent networks you're able to sort of feed all of the time series into the network, and it'll figure out where the patterns are. So it actually does, relatively speaking, reduce the need for the staff that were needed for the other techniques. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. On the other hand, so let me push back on that that a little bit. On uh, on the other hand, you need some familiarity with uh, laying out these architectures, right? So I think yes. so the, yep. so the way I've been thinking about it actually is maybe the right uh, way to think about these things is not deep learning per se but still pipelines. So deep learning mm-hmm. is a pipeline. So as a so being a pipeline it's comprised of primitives and so you need to know how to compose these primitives so you may need to apprentice with someone who knows how to do that uh, and if you if if you buy software that comes with these kind of sample pipelines. It may or may not work with your data, so you may need to tweak it. So there's, it definitely automates some of the things that were hard to do before, but it doesn't come without any learning curve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, th-
1: thank you for, I don't know whether you intentionally left the discussion, but that's precisely what we do at Arimo is to bridge that gap. So we have you know, let's say at the bottom layer of this deep learning stack are engines like TensorFlow, like Paddle, and like, like um, various deep learning uh, training engines that, that you would have in open source and, and otherwise. But there's still a gap between that and the business problem, right? And you're absolutely right that somebody has to architect the right networks. Uh, and they have to process the information or the data coming in a certain way to feed into these networks. And by the way, these networks are going to be optimized for certain problems and not others. And so com- that's where companies like Arimo come in to provide the software to reduce the need for, and I say reduce, not eliminate, but reduce the need for very advanced uh, deep learning experts, right? And so we have what's, what, in, in the case of Arimo, we call blue, what we call blueprints. And these blueprints are pre-constructed networks for certain kinds of problems. So we have a blueprint for sales forecast. We have a blueprint for predicting the next uh, artist to come out of YouTube.
0: Yeah, and I think the way you described it to me in the past, too, is uh, you actually don't even talk about it as
1: deep learning. That's right. Exactly. We talk about it at the business le- uh, level. So you have a, a problem that you want to solve. I'll give you an example of a case where um, an investment firm has whole portfolios of mortgages. And for them, it is simply a problem of being able to forecast you know, more and more accurately the cash flows that come from there subject to things like defaults and subject to things like prepays. So for them, they say, I don't really care how you solve it. Uh, But we build blueprints to solve that problem using recurrent networks right, by looking at data, not just from the transactions from the portfolios, but also economic time series, right, interest rates, default rates across the country and so on. And so that's what's exciting about deep learning as applied to that, because for the first time, we're able to combine all of these different time series, right, and feed them into these specialized architectures and just have, afford some degree of what I call domain independence, right? Because one of the the really cool things about deep learning is that feature representation becomes something that is, you know, rather automatic. That is, the deep learning specialist doesn't have to be the domain expert when it comes to that particular problem.
0: But there's still a lot of quote-unquote hyperparameters
1: that you have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the hyperparameters, the way, you know, uh, you know, some of the proprietary stuff that we do is that we package them in business terms as opposed to, you know, and instead of the number of time steps, it is the number of months, you know, um, and, and, and so on.
0: So uh, you hinted earlier that, you know, for uh, businesses who are looking to uh, kind of take that first step into deep learning, well, maybe these transactional uh, logs and time series is one area that they can try it out. And you said that actually it's not as well known, but this is one area where deep learning really excels. Can you uh, give us kind of a, a general idea of how well it excels relative to other options?
1: Um, okay, I'll, I'll give you one benchmark, and and by the way, you know, I'm, I'm more excited about that than calling just one area. I think it is the biggest area to to attack first, and that's why we focused the company on it, as contrasted to, for example, trying to do image recognition and try to do it better than other techniques. Maybe I can recall one one use case where I can describe generically where we're trying to to identify emerging artists, right? That is singers and so on that are becoming popular and to do that in what we call a behavioral manner, meaning looking at what people are doing with those songs, the listening, the, the playing, the influencers and so on. And you you can intuitively go through the process and say, well, I can I can do some feature engineering. I can define some momentum variables. I can define, you know, top ten and top twenty, last week, this week and so on. And then you can come out with a system that says, I'm gonna shortlist this. So um some of the performances that have, that is the the, 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 the sort of state-of-the-art uh, performance out of that is that uh, we're talking about, and I'm going to give you a generic metric that I can't define that metric in detail because of some proprietary stuff, is that they were achieving sort of 10% uh, numbers, right? And when we apply deep learning to this, taking into account sort of the same set of data, uh, but having the ability to... As I alluded to earlier, you don't have to care about what time windows you're looking at. You're looking at the whole time series. Then we can bring that up to a performance level of 50%. So it's like in that particular metric, it's a is a five x difference immediately.
0: So I guess the way I, you described it, so you're looking for basically trending topics, top end
1: kind of uh, uh, top end of the future, not you know not not top end of today because that's too. Oh, I see. Right? I see.
0: Interesting. So what scale do you normally encounter as far as deep learning? Is it something that fits into one machine or is it distributed? Uh,
1: Great question. Of course, we love distributed problems because we have strength there. We were the first to do distributed deep learning on Spark and then also the first to, to implement distributed TensorFlow. Having said that it turns out uh, for a majority of the problems that we work on I would say about uh, you know on the order of 70 80 percent we fit the problem sizes quite comfortably on on what I call the supercomputer platform right which is sort of a, a single machine with a, a bunch of uh, NVIDIA GPU right and and training times on the order of hours and days um, uh, but that that's the kind of thing that 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 That's the difference between the kinds of things we work on with our enterprises versus what the Googles and the Facebook you know, of the world would work on, which is probably a thousand times that scale. So the, I guess the point here is that there are very valuable business impact that you can make without having to go to Google scale.
0: So as I look at kind of the deep learning landscape for technology tools, right? So there's a few buckets. One, you have got the open source tools, TensorFlow, Torch paddle paddle a bunch of things i think most recently actually uh, i've been interested in this tool out of japan called chainer and then there's the distributed tools mostly around the spark ecosystem i think is where you hear about that there's commercial companies like your company arimo but your focus is on business solutions rather than uh, a general purpose algorithms and then finally there's the cloud and I sh- actually i think i my my suspicion is uh, this might be one of the situations where the cloud actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because uh, the companies behind them have the expertise to really make this uh, real for companies, mm-hmm. uh, yep. particularly Google and Microsoft. But and in, in, in many ways, that kind of you can start thinking again in terms of pipelines for deep learning is one primitive that you call upon. What do you think about mm-hmm. the cloud for deep learning?
1: Okay. Um, When you say cloud, and and as you know, it's a it's a very complex
0: word. Well I I mean, uh, by by this I uh, mean just kind of the public cloud services that now already now offer some form of deep learning APIs.
1: Yeah, I think if we you know, one way to look at it is to look at say the evolution of the automobile industry, right? Uh, if people don't realize that we weren't all drivers, um, you know, when when it first came out. There was very specialized, you know, that's a job for for people who used to run horse and buggy, right? And so. I, I think of, and, you know, and, and then it gets democratized and then people become drivers of cars and the people who drive cars don't really have to know about what the engines are doing, right? don't have to be automotive engineers. I see the same thing happening for machine learning, big data and deep learning in particular. The transition may be much more rapid, right? So I'm a big advocate or believer in, of the stage where we are not so much focused on the engine themselves but the ability for let me call them regular build, uh, people. But in fact, there's a there's a emerging word that I want to use: the model builders. Because the model builders can be business users, they can be data scientists, right? And so when we think about that economy, you know, it's a little too constrained. But there needs to be sort of an emerging class of these model builders for businesses, and we want to get to a stage where there are tools at their disposal where they understand what this is about, but they don't need to be experts at, you know, that very next LSTM layer and how is it recurrent, you know, and so on. And I think it'll take about, you know, three to five years for the industry to refactor itself to that. Between here and then, the question of cloud uh, for deep learning will continue. You know, it's it's not so much the delivery uh, mechanism, but at what layer, uh, at, you know, pardon the pun, uh, unintended uh, at at what at what level people engage with deep learning ethic technology, And we find that uh, you know business people you you started the discussion you know by asking that should not have to worry about the fact that they need to build a very large team of data scientists who are experts in deep learning. but how how do these things deliver business value for me? And in that sense, I do see a movement toward that encapsulation where people say, I would love for there to be a, a secure place for me to feed data in and I get predictions coming out, right? So in that sense, it's perfect for
0: the cloud model. Actually, uh, one, one thing about uh, business use cases that I've been meaning to ask you is uh, what about unstructured text? Is this something where you're, uh, you and your company are starting to explore the use of deep learning for business solutions?
1: Oh, yeah, it's uh, it's actually, so when we talk about time series data, we actually generalize it. It's actually sequential data. Right, right. right, right. And and text is sequence. Uh, text, you know, words don't come a- in a random order. And so we do specialize in, you know, when, when you think about text being unstructured, it is actually only at the stage where... What we call tokenization or representation of the text, and so there are a number of deep learning or deep learning-related embedding techniques. You know, things like word to vec, right. sentence to vec, thought to vec, and so on. and And these are contributions at the representational uh, layer. That is, how do you featureize text? So yeah, we we do that routinely. So
0: what uh, what kinds of applications is it like? Text classification.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be one of the simpler ones. Um, you know, uh, sentiment classification and so on. But most generally is that thinking about embedding text and then using that, those embeddings as one of the important features to feed into your business problem. So, for example, uh, if I go back to the financial industry, you might use text as one of the signals now, right? to try to understand or predict what's happening with the stock market or the underlying security. Before, you can only deal with actual time series of financial numbers, the stock quotes, the interest rates, and so on. But what about uh, tweets? What about uh, SEC filing, right? How do you encode all of that and then feed them into the same set of networks? Uh, and with deep learning, using deep learning as a feature engineering tool for that, to, to, to represent text in, in vectors. Once you've done that embedding, the text becomes just another set of features that you can feed into the network.
0: So we talked about unstructured text. We talked about structured data and time series, and, which, and you alluded to forecasting there. So one other popular use of machine learning among companies is recommenders. Mm-hmm. So is that also an area?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So recommendation, uh, as, as you know, is very broad and people think about collaborative filtering and, and, and so on. Right. And, and these are sort of what we call latent techniques. That is somehow you learn the, the implied uh, drivers. Let, let's say Netflix is a, is a favorite uh, example that people uh, talk about when it comes to recommendation. Right. You know, I think you're going to like this movie because of certain latent features about people like you. and and movies like this one. With deep learning, and particularly deep learning in time series, we have the opportunity now for the first time to essentially make recommendations based on your behavior, right? So I think of that as longitudinal versus cross-sectional, right? Uh, So so
0: it's just so behavioral data, but no use of content. So I thought nowadays people use content plus behavior. Absolutely, so content would be a
1: feature, right? So your behavior, let's say in a retail use case, right, by following your purchases and your clicks. And of course, it does matter what page you click on, right? And so that's the content. But learning it in a very um, domain agnostic manner and just saying, Here, here's, a, here's a sequence of transactions that you have performed, right? And then stacking that together with 10 million other sessions and then learning the patterns that, that come out of that and then seeing that you belong somehow in this cluster, right? And then in that cluster, the next behaviors tend to be people who like this movie or this product. And so you are. Then we can say you are along this journey. Uh, we recommend that probably the next three products or the next three movies you should be looking at are these three. So that becomes a recommendation based on the behavioral patterns that we've learned from you know millions of others that 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 have that have come before you.
0: So let's uh let's talk about ai so one of the things that uh i guess uh listeners may not know is uh mark Andreessen and ben horowitz are big fans of christopher they'll i've uh interviewed ben on stage and he raves about uh christopher and arimo and uh and uh particularly around uh i i think christopher talking to them about ai in general but uh So here's what I I think about AI, and I think listeners have heard this so many times they might actually be tired of me uh, ranting about it. But uh, So I think of AI as a a system comprised of components, right? So you've got perception, knowledge, reasoning, and planning. And sometimes I think when it gets written up in the media, it's all about kind of the pattern recognition, deep learning aspect of it. Uh, But an AI as a system has to have all of these, right? So Without knowledge, a chatbot may know what question you're asking, but it doesn't know what, how to answer. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about AI in general uh, for businesses
1: mm. Well, I, I, I tend to agree with you that you know the the network at least the network that we build today is only one you know one sub component of it. In fact, you know reflecting our own work, we a lot of the work that we do on behalf of our customers is actually data processing, right to get into the right format and so that's got to be part of the pipeline that you talk about apart from the more sophisticated components like you know ground-based knowledge and so on. I think AI as applied to business will come in sort of gradual phases and I think there are parallels that I would draw eventually to what I call augmentation, right? So the, the first applications are going to be a, an ass, uh, I would call it a sort of an assistive point of view. That is, it's part of a system already. Uh, I gave a, several examples of which what we're doing is we're adding a intelligent decision point, right? If we can uh, look at a clickstream of someone coming to a website, to a retailer, and predict the probability of purchase, right? That is, this you know, this person or this session is likely to end in a purchase with probability thirty-five percent, and it's changing over time. Then there needs to be a larger system that takes advantage of that prediction and say, you know, okay, if it was eighty-five percent and then drops to twenty percent, maybe I should add a coupon to encourage uh, purchase, right? So that's one example where that prediction, that probability is a significant data point, a significant signal, but it's still part of a larger transactional system, right? And we see this example time and time again. It is not that there is a, you know, we build something and then that, that sort of runs the business. I think it'll be quite some time before we get to the stage where all of these pieces become all AI-enabled.
0: Or, or uh, even, uh, so I guess the way I'm interpreting what you're saying is there will be thousands of this intelligent apps. So... AI will be kind of a comprised of thousands of apps. Not, not uh, we're nowhere near close to a kind of general intelligence
1: kind of scenario. That's correct. Yeah, certainly
0: not in business
1: right applications. But that's that's the exciting part, right? Uh, meaning that we don't have to wait until that day for a business to have a competitive advantage today, right? To be able to know in real time what is the probability of someone making a purchase on my e-commerce site, and then taking action based on that is you know, transformative to to, to an e-commerce uh, business today. And, and you don't need a full AI system to take advantage of
0: that. By the way, the other thing that I've been thinking about, so okay, so you take uh, the machine learning pipeline and the machine learning component might be deep learning. But just take that pipeline, If you want to productionalize it, that's one thing, right? So you're doing a recommender, you want to deploy it in production, see if it's working properly, you may have to tweak it or replace it if it doesn't. But now you're talking about a, if you're talking about a AI system, which has all these components I described, and it's deployed in kind of in a mission critical scenario, I don't know, like self-driving cars. Now you the QA and kind of the uh, the level of software engineering you have to take it up a notch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know the quality control has to be much better, right? So
1: yeah, uh, but you know we we've th- that's that's the kind of engineering problems that people have solved before, right? So I I think that can be done. I uh, you know you speak about self driving cars, of course. I uh, you know they're, they're different sides of that, uh, but I think at least in Silicon Valley the conventional wisdom is that self-driving cars are going to be much safer, you know, for society than, right. uh, you know, than, than human driving cars. So on on the whole, the society needs to move there. Uh, and we can have all this soul searching about ethical decisions about what should a car do, you know, save the driver or save the, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the pedestrians. Uh, but on the whole, we know where we'll end up, right? And so these are uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean to trivialize everything, but you know, there's a lot of uh, engineering-related problems that we, we need to solve, or certain ethics-related problems we need to solve at the interface between how a machine makes decisions versus how a human makes decisions, and so on. Uh, these are very interesting topics that need to be to, to be resolved. But the general trend is is inexorable.
0: By the way, uh, the fascinating thing about this is it's all interrelated, right? So you talked about augmentation. I talked mm-hmm. about uh, these AI systems and the need for to develop them at high quality but they're all interrelated because uh, Peter Norvig who's the honorary chair of our upcoming or I guess by the time we air this are just concluded the uh, AI conference he's now talking about you know AI systems that will help developers mm-hmm. produce, produce high quality code make them more productive yep exactly yeah,
1: yeah I, I, th- I think in general the some of the topics that I don't see discussed as much, uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet will be, is precisely at the interface of human and machine relationship, right? Not just using, you know, uh, n- not just some of the things that I described that is, you know, helping me with decisions and so on, but I mean, actual relationship. And that's the emergence of things like chatbot, right? Emotive AI and so on. And I think these are fascinating problems that need to be worked on for us. It's, a, it's almost a social question, right? For us to accept these things in our lives, they need to come to us, right? We're humans, we evolve much more slowly than the algorithms. Uh, so there's fascinating work, uh, you know, for example, my, my friend Pascal Fung at the uh, Hong Kong University of Science Technology, working on, on some of this emotive AI, you know, emotional robots that can detect our emotion. Uh, I think these things are essential for advances, you know, in AI. To be integrated in our lives, and I think uh, it's going to be happening over the next next ten years, and so I'm I'm really watching for that. And and if I uh, you know along those lines, uh, you know my fascination with uh, with the intelligence augmentation, that is IA, as opposed to just AI, right?
0: So uh, actually, to our listeners out there, uh, O'Reilly now has a artificial intelligence conference. Uh, by the time this airs, we would have just had the first one, but we will have AI conferences in 2017. And I'm uh, proud to say that Christopher is in our advisory board and has helped our thinking in terms of how to uh, uh, unpack this interesting world of AI. Uh, so let me close with uh, a couple of quick topics. Uh, one is hardware. Now that I mm-hmm. know that you have some hardware background, right? So yep. there's a- all sorts of uh, things that play into uh, the topics we talked about. That are hardware related, right? So I'll throw out a few GPUs, ASICs, and FPGAs. In particular, Microsoft is quite interested in FPGAs. So maybe you can you can give our audience a quick uh, tour of what they should pay attention to uh, in hardware. Yeah.
1: Th- so there's you know AI or deep learning, in particular is is fueling a really a renaissance in the in the uh, hardware arms race, and hardware suddenly matters again, right? you know, the re-emergence of the XPU. It's no longer just CPU, but also GPU and and TPU, tensor for processing units. Um, One way to think about the hardware aspect is that there's a semi-continuous trade-off between general purpose computing, that is the CPU, right, that can be reprogrammed or programmed in real time to do whatever computation you want, versus the amount of energy needed to perform a specific uh, AI task or deep learning task, right? So in that sense, you can think of software written to run on CPU to simulate neurons uh, in in these uh, deep networks uh, is at the very highest level of what I call simulation. And then you realize that actually the CPU wastes a lot of energy tracking a lot of other stuff that aren't really relevant or that aren't it's too general and it's not specific enough to my particular deep learning task and so GPU is sort of the next layer going down and say okay i know the computation capabilities are more uh, you know more restricted but that's all i need and so it turns out that you know you you can do that you can uh, be much more efficient in terms of energy expended fpga fuel programmable gate arrays is sort of one more step in that direction where you can do some limited pre- reprogramming of uh, of the gates of the of the uh, let's let's call them the transistors uh, on this, this this chip, and then ultimately, once you're sure that you have an algorithm that you're not going to change much, but you want it sort of an ultimate efficiency, then you go all the way to chip ASICs. Right? So there's this sort of continuum between CPU, GPU, FPGA, and ASICs. And I think ultimately, remember, all these things are still based on. The transistor as the basic computing unit. I think over the next decade or two, we will move to what I call neuromorphic computing, where the basic unit of compute is no longer a transistor that has zero or one, uh, but more like a neuron. And, and you know, we have ideas about how neurons are likely to work, certainly in the artificial neurons that we use. You know, a bunch of inputs coming in, and they sum up, and if they exceed a th- certain threshold, they fire. If not, then then, then they don't. Uh, and they are essentially fault tolerant in the sense that the exact analog value doesn't matter as much as, you know, as in other words, we don't need very high resolution. So we can trade off a lot of the resolution for energy efficiency. So at the hardware layer, I think it's really exciting times that, that you know, over the next couple of decades, there's going to be a lot of innovation there. I know companies like Intel is determined not to miss, uh, you know, this this opportunity the way uh, they kind of missed uh, the mobile uh, transformation.
0: By the way, uh, as I as, as I was listening to you talk, I, I get, just got reminded that actually uh, this all ties back to even Spark in many ways because in in Spark the philosophy, as I understand it, is if it runs well, if your data fits in my, one machine, great, run it on one machine using TensorFlow or whatever whatever mm-hmm. key you have. If it doesn't run in one machine. Distribute it across a cluster and use Spark to run your software across a cluster. So that's I think right. I think in many ways, kind of this pipeline. Then, of, as you alluded to, data processing. You're using Spark, and then at some point you decide, okay, my data is too big. I distribute it across a cluster. I'll use Spark to
1: to to, to coordinate the computation across it. That, that's right. Yeah, one of the. Um fundamental architecture that we use is we do Spark to, we use Spark primarily to do the data ingest and transformation. It's really, really good for that with a lot of abstractions available for that and we've added our own set of data science related abstraction. And then when we need to do deep learning, we do that either in a distributed manner or in a single machine manner in engines like TensorFlow, right? And then where Tachyon or Luxio comes in is that we also use that layer as the data bus that, um, because it turns out um, it's the, the the transfer of data is actually it's back and forth, right? right? People think of it as a as a single flow, but it's actually not like that. You may do some exploration, you may do some if, training, if and only, you send it back. Like the,
0: if only, <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, right. So so that's sort of one of the fundamental architectures that we use. We're we're just very uh, sophisticated users of of these of these engines, but I think the value that we express is at the at the application layer.
0: So let me close by. Uh talking about china so we had our first ever strata plus Hadoop world conference in china and i had christopher give a keynote uh, because he pays attention to what's happening in china about uh, uh, innovation in china particularly around the topics we've been talking about ai and deep learning so why don't you give our audience kind of a high level overview of what's going on in china
1: um yeah that's a. Uh... Good question. Interesting segue. You mentioned earlier Microsoft and FPGA. I think a lot of people don't know that a lot of the early efforts at Microsoft on FPGA came out of Beijing, uh, the Microsoft Research uh, team there, uh, Microsoft Research Asia. Uh, I, I remember back in as early as 2007, work between Microsoft Research and Tsinghua University on, I forget exactly, the, the sort of a, a FPMR, right? FPGA on MapReduce. And so that, I think, informs Microsoft a lot in terms of you know, their, their, their core capabilities around that. And so today, Microsoft is using FPGA in their data centers and, and applying it to deep learning as well. So that's an example where some of the muscles you know, for significant companies, including Microsoft, are coming out of a place like China. So, so that, that tells us something about so the, the raw talent that's available. The, the other thing that is unique about China, that also applies to say Silicon Valley or US that does not apply to places like you know Vietnam or, or even more so Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, is that China has scale and uh, from the AI perspective, from the deep learning perspective, scale of the data right uh, is, is is paramount. The more data you have, the better the more robust the model, the, the sort of the more powerful, your algorithms or your models can become. Uh, and if you generalize it outside of AI, we see that innovation, uh, you know, such as when we refer to Silicon Valley innovation, the key ingredient in that is scale, right? We care about innovation coming out of Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley companies tend to work on problems of scale. Other places also have a lot of innovation, uh, but we tend not to hear about them much maybe we don't even care about them because they don't really affect our lives, they don't have the scale. Well, it turns out so. China has these, you know, all these raw ingredients that I mentioned. In terms of, you know, raw talent exists everywhere. Uh, and and when a company in, in China, you know, when they work on a problem uh, of any meaning, they are already of, of uh, working on a problem of large scale. Uh, so it is because of these mechanics. I, I call I want to call them mechanics. It's like, it's inevitable. It's whether you like it or not. It's not a it's not a wish. It's just a fact that a lot of innovation that we care about will, over the next decade, be coming out of China.
0: Yeah, speaking of scale, when I was in Beijing, I was uh, talking to a company, and I was asking them about, uh, so how many customers do you have? And this person said, you know, we don't really have that many customers. We only have 45 million. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go, right? Because the addressable market, of course, is over a billion, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, actually... To make uh, even uh, what you said concrete, because I did, uh, I I watched your keynote, which, by the way, I'm going to link to in this post, uh, you know, there's actual concrete examples, right? So you've got uh, in robotics, in Mm -hmm. drones, Yeah, uh, DJI, yeah, Mm -hmm. in drones. And then also uh, Microsoft Shawice, which is this uh, chatbot that they have in China, which is, I think maybe the third or fourth most popular personality on Weibo.
1: Yep, they call him Xiao Bing. It's just a play on, uh, Bing is ICE in Chinese, but Bing is also, you know, Microsoft Bing.
0: Right? Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for uh, taking part in this interview. And uh, we've gone a little longer, but uh, it's been great.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: If you're like me, you're very particular about the types of uh, reports you read. I'm glad to announce that we now have over 80 free reports on many topics in data science, big data, and AI, put together by our wonderful team of data editors. They cover trends, tools, and topics, and applications. You can go to O'Reilly.com slash data slash free for a complete list of our free reports. You can follow Christopher Nguyen on Twitter at P-E-N-T-A-G-O-N. IAC. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.